Good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright. So if you're just joining us for the first time today, or if you haven't been with us in recent weeks, we are studying through a book in the New Testament of the Bible. It's called 1 Corinthians. We call it a book, but really it's a letter that Paul wrote to a church in the city of Corinth. And we've talked about that quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. It was written 20, 25 years after the ascension of Jesus. That is after Jesus, Christians believe, the point in time when Jesus left the earth and went back to the Father in heaven. And after that, the church really started growing. And and you can pick up the story in the book of Acts, in chapter 1, if you'd like to read it. And you can read in Acts 18 about Paul's visit to the church in Corinth. So the gospel started to go out. It started in Jerusalem, spread to Judea and Samaria, and then missionaries like Paul took the message, the good news about Jesus, into the far corners of the Roman Empire and all around the Mediterranean world. So Paul had planted the church in Corinth, and now he's writing back to this church that's deeply troubled. He's heard some rumors, some reports that things aren't going well there. And the church in Corinth was troubled in at least five ways. And we're going to go through all of them uh, in the coming months. First of all, the Corinthians were divided into factions based on who their favorite preacher was. It was tearing them apart. And that's in chapters 1 to 4. So imagine if you know, there was a, an Alex faction, a Justin faction, and an Allison faction at court right? And we like, we're duking it out over coffee after the service. Remember when we had coffee? Something like that. Secondly, the Corinthian Christians were letting the sex-obsessed city of Corinth shape their view of love, sex, marriage, singleness, and divorce. That's in chapters 5 to 7. Third, they had all kinds of cultural questions. They were unsure how to live as Christians, what to do, what not to do, whether they should eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. That was a big deal, a big question for them. For us, not so much, but for us it would be issues like, how do we approach politics as Christians? What job should we get? How do we think about money or about science and technology and so on? So that's in chapters 8 to 10. Fourth, the Corinthian Christians were conflicted about worship. And so Paul focuses on the role of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts in the church in chapters 11 to 14. And finally, they did not understand the resurrection of Jesus. It's a tough one to wrap your head around, isn't it? So in chapter 15, Paul explains why the resurrection is so central to Christian faith. It's the most sustained in-depth teaching on the resurrection you'll find in the whole Bible. So that's where we're headed over the next few months. And we are going to take our time with it as well. This is going to be the longest sermon series we've done at Courtright in the past 12 years since I've been here anyway. So why do that? Why drag it out for so long? What is a sermon anyway? Do you ever ask yourself that question as you're walking around the city of Guelph? The dictionary says that a sermon is a talk on a religious or a moral subject that is given by a member of the clergy as part of a church service. But that leaves out the most important thing, which is the Bible. I would say that a sermon is exposition, which is a slightly old-fashioned word for what happens when you try to shed light on something or explain it. In the case of a Christian sermon, it's always exposition of Scripture, of the Old Testament or the New Testament. 
So we're practicing, as we go through this sermon series, we're practicing what the leaders of the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century called Lectio Continua, which means continuous reading. Lectio Continua allows us to read a book of the Bible in the way it was intended to be read, from beginning to end. And that's going to add up to 21 or 22 sermons by the end of June. No proof texting. That is not picking out your favorite parts of a book of the Bible or the part that proves your point. That's what proof texting is. So for example, 100,000 sermons have been preached on chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, most of them at weddings. You know that passage? Love is patient, love is kind, love is, love is, love is. 100,000 sermons on that passage for every 10 on the passage we're looking at today in chapter 2. Another example, it was tempting for us to skip chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians and to avoid the topic of incest entirely. I did Google preaching on incest and got very limited results. (laughs) So instead of skipping it, we decided to give it to Justin. (laughs) Because Justin is a glutton for punishment. After all, he is a Habs fan, right? Oh, that's two weeks healing prayer afterwards. So when Allison and Justin and I meet to prepare sermons, we we try to always ask ourselves three questions. What? What does this mean? So what? What does it matter? What does it make a difference? And now what? How is this going to affect how I live? And those are great questions for anyone wanting to learn from the Bible. Christians believe that the 66 books of the Bible are God's word, not some historical accident not simply primary sources that came together, who knows how. We believe that God brought them together for us and that now, today, the Holy Spirit speaks to us through them, which is crazy, right? Like we gather every week around this book believing that God has a message for us from it. That's total foolishness, but it is the wisdom of God. So let's pray for that right now before we open up our Bibles. Dear God, I ask that the words of my mouth this morning would not be my own wise and persuasive words, but that you, Holy Spirit, would come among us so that our faith would not depend on human wisdom and human ability, but only on your grace and your power. Would you point us to the cross today? Show us more of Jesus, we ask. Amen. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. Ooh, there's water. So here Paul is going to shift gears a little bit. The however marks that shift. He's going to talk about wisdom in a different way now. We do, however... He writes, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, and here he's quoting from Isaiah 64, What no eye has seen and what no ear has heard and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. 
These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given to us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For, a question arising from Isaiah 40, who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we, we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was in high school, I played basketball. Our team wasn't very good but we had fun. There was one kid on the team who did something weird. He would shoot free throws underhanded. So he would go to the line after getting fouled, and instead of holding the ball up high, like you're supposed to, like a real man, (laughs) he would have it down here, and he would do this kind of thing, like embarrassing (laughs) for everybody. So we gave him a hard time about it. And the teams we played against, they really gave him a hard time about it. But you know, he made a lot more of those free throws than anyone else did. More than me, that's for sure. I asked him about it one time, and he told me the story of Rich Barry. Anyone know that name? Any basketball fans here? Last year, Barry was voted one of the top 75 greatest basketball players of all time. He led the league in points, Season after season, and when he retired in 1980, he had the best free throw percentage in the NBA at over 90%. Over his career, no one made more free throws, but he looked like a total goof doing it, or so a lot of people thought. He didn't care. And my friend in high school who had drawn his inspiration from Rich Berry felt the same way. He said to me, even if all the other kids think you're a fool, He asked, why, when you know it's the best way, why would you conform to their shallow expectations? I've always remembered that because, you know, there's a lot of conformity going on in high school and much later in life as well. Last week we saw that Paul makes a similar point in a way in the first chapter of his letter to the church in Corinth. He reminded them that God had chosen the foolish things of the world when he called them. And this was about something a lot more important than sports. Paul writes, For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, that is everyone, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So that's going to be an anchor throughout this letter, that statement, we preach Christ crucified. 
Paul wrote this letter to remind the Corinthian Christians of their calling to be one body, the body of Christ in a broken and divided world. And this letter does that for us as well. We need that reminder also as we start to come out of our COVID COVID hibernation. How can we be peacemakers inside our churches and in the wider world around us? I think Gord nailed it in his prayer of confession with the word strife. Strife really does seem to sum up a lot of what we're facing. How can we witness and live out God's love? Well, the first thing is to ground ourselves in God's wisdom. And that's what Paul wants to do for us here in this somewhat abstract and and a little challenging, I think, this passage. Um, So he describes here three ways that we can get God's wisdom. He says that God's wisdom, first of all, is hidden. Second of all, it's inconceivable. And third, it's revealed only by God. So the first thing is that God's wisdom is hidden. It's almost a surprise in verse 6 when Paul has something good to say about wisdom. He's been pretty negative about it so far. But now he says, We do, however, speak a word of wisdom among the mature. Which doesn't mean that he's speaking only to some special group of elite Christians who have achieved maturity. No, he's, he's breaking down all those cliques and factions. That's his goal, one of his goals. And he's calling all of them mature here simply by accepting this message that we preach Christ crucified, they have become mature. And he's saying that everyone who has accepted that gospel is in that same boat. But then he says it's hidden. So why would God hide something so beautiful so true, so good? Well, we start to get an explanation with the repeated reference to the rulers of this age in these opening three verses. I think the natural inclination we have is to look for wisdom inside ourselves, to work for it, to earn it, to achieve it. We want to get the power to be independent the knowledge so that we can pursue our own self-interest. Gordon Fee, who was one of my teachers at Regent College in Vancouver, says the real danger of worldly wisdom is self-reliance. And self-reliance gets in the way of what should be the single concern of preaching and of the Christian. That is the gospel proclaimed through human weakness but accompanied by the powerful work of the Spirit so that lives are changed through a divine human encounter. Self-reliance always gets in the way of the work of the Spirit. When something is hidden, what happens when you find it? Think back to scavenger hunts you might have enjoyed as a kid. Right? You have to go around looking for a list of items. You don't know where they are. To start with, they're hidden. But when you find them, you're really happy. You're starting to put it all together. You're finding what was hidden. And when you find all the items on the list as part of the game, well, you've won. 
That is, unless someone else found them first. And so you look around to see if you got to the end before anyone else did, if you beat the other kids. But Paul wants to call the Corinthian Christians away from that kind of competitive spirit and back to unity and humility. He calls them, and he calls us as well, into what he says in verse 7 is a shared destiny for our glory going back to before time began. Earlier, he was talking about himself. If you read the first five verses of this chapter, he was saying, I didn't come to Corinth with eloquence to speak to you with persuasive words. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. But now he says, we, in verse six, it changes. We are in this together, he's saying. And he's establishing a common foundation in our shared understanding and worship of the crucified Lord of glory. Again, the crucifixion comes up as the basis for our togetherness. So we did not find this treasure ourselves. It was hidden. Only because of God's grace, only as a gift, did it come to us. Here's a practical way that you can practice the hidden wisdom of God, right? We had what, so what, now what? Serve God anonymously. You know how hard this is to do? When we do something good, we want people to know about it, right? You're going to put that on social media as soon as you possibly can. It'll go on your resume, too. You might mention it in casual conversation. At the very least, you'll tell people who are close to you. It only makes sense. Some of it is, is just fine, but there's also an interest we have in raising people's opinion of us. But what if indulging in that is not good for our souls? What if you could resist the temptation to promote yourself that way? What if you could find a way to serve and not tell anyone? What if you could keep it between you and God and only take it to the Lord in prayer? Well, that would be foolishness. But the kingdom of God, Jesus tells us, is like a mustard seed, the tiniest of seeds hidden from view. That's where faith starts. On March the 2nd, it will be Ash Wednesday, which is the beginning of Lent. So I want to invite you, some of you might be inspired by this, to see if you can find a way to serve people around you over the 40 days of Lent and to do it anonymously, to hide it in your heart and to see how the Holy Spirit teaches you through that experience. I remember reading about the president of a theological college in the U.S. whose wife got Alzheimer's. He was in his early 50s, and at the height of his career, the college under his leadership had gone from strength to strength. And as the disease progressed, a whole bunch of people, friends and family, started to encourage him to put his wife in a home so she could get the care she needed, and so he could continue in his work for the Lord. The college offered to pay for his wife's health care. But he did something different. He chose to resign. He left that prestigious career to care for his wife full-time. 
I think he put in practice the hidden wisdom of God as he did so. And in the article that I read in Christianity Today about his story, he, he wrote about the common wisdom of our world. That's the, the phrase he used. The common wisdom of our world says that if a relationship is not meeting your needs, if it's getting in the way of what you want, you should terminate it or at least leave it as soon as possible. But we are called to faith in Christ. And we preach Jesus crucified. And the Holy Spirit draws us into the foolishness of God's wisdom and gives us joy and peace, even in our suffering, maybe especially in our suffering. The next thing Paul says about about God's wisdom is that it's inconceivable. Now, if you're a fan of the Princess Bride, like we are in my family, you know this word, inconceivable. Vizzini says it whenever something makes him unhappy. And Inigo Montoya raises the question of whether that word means what he thinks it means. In verse 9, Paul quotes from Isaiah 64 to make the point that there is no word that means what we think it means when it comes to God. No human mind can conceive of who God is and what he has prepared for those who love him. You can't get there by thinking it through. But the Holy Spirit can. The Holy Spirit knows God inside and out. And in verse 12, Paul says that we have received the Spirit of God so that we can understand what God has freely given us. And that is his grace. The gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ, the promise of something inconceivably more beautiful than we could have imagined that he has prepared for each one of us as those who love him. And that's where we get to participate. We're not like Vizzini in The Princess Bride who uses big words and doesn't really know what they mean. As it says in verse 13, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. What on earth does that mean? That is some mouthful of a sentence. But simply, it's describing what happens when we talk about what God has done for us in Jesus when we express the wisdom of God's word in a discussion, say in a Bible study group, or with a friend, or when we share our faith with someone who is curious about Christianity. Amazingly, whenever we speak like that, however inadequate we might feel contributing to that conversation, the Holy Spirit is teaching us. Isn't that incredible? And as we read the Bible and as we share those words with others, the Spirit is shaping us, giving us a whole new language, giving us a taste of God's glory even. Now, if you're not in the habit of meeting regularly with other Christians to study the Bible, and if you're not asking the Spirit to give you opportunities to explain your faith to a friend, to a co-worker, or a neighbor who isn't a believer, then you are missing out on building this relationship with the Holy Spirit who is the one who reveals Christ to us. Whenever you open your Bible, whenever you head into a meeting or a coffee date with a friend, I want to encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to give you his words, to shine his light into your mind. That's what he does. Illumination 
is so central to the Spirit's role. Ask for the Spirit, for more of the Holy Spirit, so that you can conceive what is inconceivable and so that you can get closer to Jesus. The last thing about God's wisdom is that it has to be revealed. If you're here today because you're interested in exploring Christian faith, or maybe you just never really got it, you don't really understand it, and you don't actually believe it, well, the reason for that does not lie with you, some failure on your part, some way you need to work harder at it, or with me and my preaching, or because you have not yet read the right C.S. Lewis book or met the person who will put it in just the right terms so that the puzzle falls into place. Rather, it's because of what verse 14 says. Faith can only come through the Spirit. We do not and we cannot control the Spirit or His timing. But we can pray. And that sums up how we practice our faith in waiting and obedience. If you're searching for God or if you have someone in your life who you would love to see come to Christ, don't give up. God's revelation comes through prayer. In James 1, it says, do you need wisdom? Well, just ask God for it. The next verse is a, is a pretty weird one. In verse 15, it says that the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. So does that mean that Christians are never wrong or shouldn't be judged or held accountable? No, absolutely not. What it's saying is that the Holy Spirit helps us to evaluate all things, not to dismiss them or pass judgment in some arrogant way, but to discern what's right and what's wrong in any given situation, always in community, always within the church. It's also saying that we should not be afraid or be unduly influenced by merely human judgment. We answer to God and to God alone. Now, that doesn't mean we should be self-righteous. No, the Spirit always shows up, most of all, in our weakness and wants to nurture humility in us. Last week, I told you that I believe that Protestants, Roman Catholics, and Eastern Orthodox Christians are all part of the true church of Jesus Christ. I had a couple of people raise questions about that this week. One person asked me if I'd lost my Presbyterian mojo. <laughs> Don't you think the Reformed tradition has the best theology, he said? Well, I avoided the question, but I gave an answer that my mother taught me after my conversion in my mid-20s when I was trying to figure out what church to join. The one thing I knew was it wasn't going to be Presbyterian. <laughs> my mom said that Christians should embrace unity in the essentials, diversity in the non-essentials, and charity, which means kindness and generosity, in all things. Think about how different our world and how different the church would be if we could live up to that. Because the answer to the question we have in verse 16, a quotation from Isaiah 40, is that no one has the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. So how can we not be humble? How can we not approach our differences with honesty about them? but at the same time, holding lightly to our disagreements. And most of all, 
We have the mind of Christ. That's how Paul ends here. And as we proclaim Christ crucified, as we turn our eyes upon Jesus, the divisions and the resentments will fade and we will find that we are perfectly united in mind and thought. Remember that from verse 10 last week in chapter 1? Maybe it was a bit of hyperbole or exaggeration on Paul's part when he said, we're all going to agree on everything. I don't know if that made you skeptical or wonder. Of course, we are not going to think the same way about everything. But I think Paul, back in chapter 1 and here, in what we've read today, is talking about bigger picture unity. Once again, we have unity in the essentials, even as there is diversity in the non-essentials, and we are called to seek the mind of Christ together in all things, not to lose our way or get sidetracked. Maybe you have your doubts about this. Maybe it seems foolish to pretend that we could be perfectly united here at Courtright, let alone in the wider church. Well, then it's time to look up the prayer of Jesus for us, for the church, in John 17, and he's still praying this prayer at the right hand of God the Father. Constantly, he is praying, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. If Jesus is praying for it, do we believe it could happen? Does that deal with our skepticism a little bit? Does that encourage us to reach out in whatever way God might create an opening for you? Last week I suggested that one really simple thing would be to speak well of other churches rather than to put them down. Maybe there are justifiable criticisms. Could we be careful about that? Could we pray for other churches? For St. George's Orthodox Church just across the park. If you don't know anything about the Eastern Orthodox Church, you should come out definitely for Courtright Connect on February 26. A little plug there because we talk about the different stories, the different traditions of Christianity, even as we explain a little bit about what the Reformed or Presbyterian, Presbyterian it's hard to say, it's really a tricky one, what it teaches and what we believe. There's a lot of other important things we could say about the mind of Christ, but I don't have time this morning, and I'm going to ask the sound booth to put up a quote by John Stott at the end of the service, so if you want to stick around. John Stott, like few people I've ever read, gets the mind of Christ and teaches us about it. So I will say one last thing about how we can have the mind of Christ, since that's what Paul ends with. That's his emphasis. I think maybe the best illustration of how this happens is found in Luke chapter 24. After the resurrection, there are these two disciples wandering down the road to Emmaus. And Jesus comes up to them and they don't recognize him and says he's hidden from them. There's that word again, hidden, right? And he talks with them and, and, and they don't get it. 
And then later, he reappears to the disciples, and, and they still don't recognize him, but he shows them his hands and his feet. He points to the cross. And while they still don't believe it, he asked them if they had anything to eat, and they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And with those two disciples, he was revealed to them, it says, in the breaking of the bread, in communion, in the fellowship of the church, in the sacraments. But it was revealed. They did not figure it out. There is not a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who could ever understand the scriptures enough to come to faith in Christ. Can I ask you this morning, has God opened your mind to Jesus? It doesn't mean that you know everything, you understand everything. Nor does it mean that if we have the mind of Christ, we don't need human teachers. It also doesn't mean that studying is easy or that we can disregard it. But it simply means that every Christian who rests in God's grace can understand the Word of God, the Bible. You don't need a priest or pastor to interpret it for you. You don't need a holy man to go away and climb up a mountain and come back with a bunch of elaborate whatever. You simply need to go home and do just as I've done this week. Take your Bible, get on your knees, and say, Spirit of God, you are my teacher. Show me who you are. Show me who I am. Show me my Savior and make this book live for me. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you that you do not leave us in our perplexity or in our strife, but you have sent your Holy Spirit to give life to the church, to urge us on to unity, and most of all, to point to Jesus, Jesus who died, Jesus who has risen, and Jesus who will, come, who will come again. We thank you for all that. Amen.